Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, and if true crime is your jam and like me, you enjoy delving into unsolved cases, trying to figure out who done it, please consider subscribing. Also, if you enjoy my videos, please hit that like button. I recently listened to a former FBI profiler break down what the Delphi murders and crime scenes say about Bridge Guy, as well as interviews with Tony Klein's stepchildren, a young man and woman whose mother married Tony Klein when they were still toddlers. I thought it would be fascinating to compare the FBI agent's profile of the perpetrator to what Tony Klein's stepchildren said he was like as a stepfather. Do their recollections of Tony Klein's personality match the characteristics the FBI profiler believes Bridge Guy has? Now, I want to make it clear that no one has been charged in this case, and everyone in the United States is innocent until proven guilty. I'm not saying that Kagan or Tony Klein definitely were involved with Libby and Abby's murders. I'm just looking at what the profiler describes. Stepchildren describe him and their half-brother, Kagan. By the way, I'm going to be sharing some upsetting instances of abuse toward children in this episode. So if that's triggering for you, you may want to stop listening. Let's get started. Tony Klein, you may recall, is Kagan Anthony Klein's father. Tony Klein's stepchildren are half-siblings to Kagan. The three of them share the same mother. Note the mother divorced Tony Klein when her eldest son, Bart, was in sixth grade. 27-year-old Kagan Klein's name came up in connection with the Delphi murders two weeks after Libby and Abby were discovered. That's when investigators traced Kagan Klein to a fake social media account under the name of Anthony Schatz. It turns out that 14-year-old Libby German had been communicating with this person she believed to be a hunky young guy named Anthony Schatz as late as the morning of February 13, 2017, the day she and Abby Williams were killed. A released transcript of an interview the police had with Kagan Klein revealed that more than one person in the Klein home was likely logging into the Anthony Schatz account and communicating with minor girls. Different devices in the home were used to log into the fake account, and the persons communicating with the girls had very different writing styles and very different voices in their communications. Some speculate that perhaps Kagan's father, Tony, was one of the two people in the Klein home pretending to be Anthony Schatz and communicating with young girls. The same interview transcript made it clear that investigators are now focusing on Kagan's father, Tony Klein, as a potential person of interest in the Delphi case. I believe Tony Klein does bear a physical resemblance to Bridge Guy, both in his face and his build. One thing I've also noticed where the sides are shaved and the top is longer. Is it possible that Bridge Guy wore that cap to disguise a unique haircut? It makes me wonder. 
Let's start with what the former FBI profiler had to say. She based her profile on what she observed of Bridge Guy in the video of him walking on the bridge and in the audio where we hear him speak, as well as on the location of the crime, as well as the location where Libby and Abby were found. You may recall that the crime scene actually starts at the Monin High Bridge and continues all the way to where Abby and Libby were found. First, the profiler believes that this case will be solved through forensic evidence. According to the profiler, a lot of forensic evidence was likely left at the crime scene. Her thoughts were that in the heat of committing the frenzied crime, the killer most likely shed evidence, evidence that he couldn't possibly remove from the scene. We know it was a bloody crime scene and that DNA was found. Whether it's DNA from semen or blood is unknown. I did learn, however, that a fingerprint was discovered there, so that may be one of the DNA sources or the only DNA source. The profiler is certain that other forensic evidence in the way of hairs and fibers were also shed at the scene, so fingers crossed that crime scene investigators were able to gather all of that evidence. Here's a mental sketch of who the profiler believes the killer to be. She said he's likely someone who is into outdoor activities, such as hiking, being out in the woods, and hunting. According to the profiler, the killer also had to have been very familiar with the Monin High Bridge, the trail system around it, and the surrounding land, including the private property below the bridge. She believes that the killer fine-tuned his plan with that particular bridge in mind because of its unique ability to trap victims on the far side. Now, apparently there are some trees on the far end of the bridge, meaning toward the side where Abby and Libby were walking and where Bridge Guy likely intercepted them. The profiler believes Bridge Guy could have been hiding in the trees at that end of the bridge so that when the girls first stepped onto the bridge, they would not have seen anyone on it or standing near the other side of it. Once the teens were far enough onto the bridge, the perpetrator could have come out from those trees and started walking on the bridge toward the girls. After the teens cross the man on the bridge, he's going toward where the girls just came from, and the girls are continuing their walk to the far end. Somewhere along the way, Bridge Guy could have turned around, done a U-turn, and started walking up behind the girls. In this manner, he could have landed himself in a position of power, blocking them from heading back over the bridge to get to where Libby's father was supposed to pick her and Abby up. At some point, the girls likely noticed that the weird guy they had just passed on the bridge was behind them and walking up toward the back of them. I suspect this man gave off some scary, evil vibes that were palpable to the girls. A creeper factor. Perhaps an icy look in black eyes devoid of warmth. 
I've encountered people like this who make the hair on your arms stand up, and I've always trusted my intuition, meaning I've run away from them, even if I look like a fool. Perhaps when Libby felt these vibes and saw the man coming back toward her and Abby, that's when she started the video, keeping the phone hidden out of the man's sight and capturing him out of frame. When Bridge Guy got close enough to the girls, he likely brandished a weapon, which is why the girls maybe complied with his orders to head down the hill. Young girls have a tendency to follow orders from adults, to respect authority, to not question older men barking orders, so that may also have been a factor. Ladies, let this serve as a warning. Question authority when it doesn't feel right. Run if the hairs on your arms stand up. Listen to that feeling in your gut. Sadly, in this case, I don't think Libby and Abby had the benefit of a safe exit. Even if the hairs were standing up on their arms, there was no sure place to run to to get away. The old bridge with missing planks would not have lent itself to running. I think that's why the girls couldn't just blow past him on that narrow bridge or even rush him and push him off the bridge. They also could not have envisioned the evil cruelty he was capable of. When you're Libby and Abby's ages, 14 and 13 respectively, and maybe living a somewhat sheltered life in a small town, you likely have no clue that evil to that degree can exist in a human being. I think if they'd known he was going to kill them, they would have said, forget you, I'm not going down the bridge, catch us if you can, shoot us if you can, we're gonna run. According to the profiler, Bridge Guy likely rehearsed the steps of the plan and plotted out his escape very carefully. Note that the girls were found in a ravine that made it particularly hard for searchers to spot. This likely bought Bridge Guy the time he needed to make his way out along his escape route, which very likely may have been toward the cemetery that lies just past Ron Logan's property line. I'm thinking the perpetrator must have had blood spatter on him regardless of his weapon of choice. He also had to have known that with young girls, there would be a search at some point and probably fairly soon after their families realized that something was wrong. So Bridge Guy was something of a risk taker. The profiler also describes Bridge Guy as a hunter, a sexual predator, who picked the location and then picked the victims who were available. This makes me think that Bridge Guy knew that Monday, February 13th, 2017, was a makeup snow day for the kids in the area, that somehow he knew they were off of school that day, and that with the weather being so nice and mild, that some kids would hike along the trail system and even head over to the old Monin High Bridge. So did he go there on that Monday, February 13th, early, hide, and wait for the right victims? Possibly. However, it's also possible He would likely have known that some of the teen girls from Delphi who were communicating with Anthony Shaw were planning to go hiking at the Monin High Bridge that afternoon, 
so that may be why he was there at the time and why he was so well prepared for the crime, carrying a weapon, maybe a kill kit, and who knows what else under that padded jacket. Now here's another shocker. When Kagan Klein was interviewed in jail by reporter Barbara McDonald of HLN, he told her that his father, Tony, who's employed at the Kokomo Transmission Plant, did not work on Mondays. That combined with the Anthony Schatz person communicating with Libby on that Monday morning, mere hours before she was killed, is fairly damning circumstantial evidence against both Kagan and Tony Klein, in my opinion. The profiler also said that the killer employed instrumental violence. Instrumental violence refers to violence that's employed as a means to attain a subsidiary goal, be it power or sexual gratification or both. Instrumental violence is different from reactive violence. Reactive violence involves a response to a perceived threat or provocation. So Bridge Guy used instrumental violence, which the profiler explained generally involves victims who are strangers to the perpetrator. The profiler described the typical perpetrator of instrumental violence as someone who's cold-blooded and devoid of emotion for the victims, including having zero remorse after the crime. To the killer, the victim is just an object. The perpetrator enjoys the thrill of the crime. According to the profiler, such a predator usually commits sexually sadistic offenses. She also stated that Bridge Guy most likely is a sociopath, or what experts now call psychopathic, and that he's likely a serial offender. Such an offender is very comfortable committing crimes. He's not nervous. He's in control. She also said he likely appears normal to most people. He's one of those people who can hide in plain sight. He likely has a job. He may even have a family. He's someone who can commit murder and then show up at home and ask his wife calmly, what's for dinner, honey? The profiler also stated that the outdoor crime scene tells her that the offender is a risk taker, committing a crime outdoors in a place where other people were likely going to be walking and hiking was highly risky. It's as if his thirst for killing was stronger than his fear of getting caught. And I have to say that when we see the video of Bridge Guy walking, he, at least to me, appears cool as a cucumber. I know we can't see him up close, but his gait and his voice do not suggest nervousness, fear, or trepidation. Instead, he seems to be relishing the power position he's put himself in. This is a guy who enjoys power over others, especially those who can't fight him off. Young children, women, maybe anyone who doesn't have a weapon to oppose him with. I keep thinking if only Libby and Abby had pepper spray in their pockets, could that have been the ticket away from this monster? So that is pretty much what the profiler had to say about the type of person Bridge Guy most likely is.
So what do Tony Klein's stepchildren remember about their stepfather, and do their recollections match what the FBI profiler says about the perpetrator? Let's start with Tony's stepdaughter. This would be Kagan Klein's older half-sister. We'll call her Nadia because she doesn't want her actual name published, and she doesn't want to be tracked down or contacted. Nadia says she was thankfully never essayed by her stepfather. However, Tony Klein was still abusive to her physically in other ways, such as punching her and beating her. Nadia describes a very disturbing childhood with Tony Klein. She was very young, maybe two years old, when her mother married him. Nadia remembers being around age four and living in a white house in Peru, Indiana, with Tony Klein. She said that he could smile at you one second, then blink and suddenly be a totally different person. Per Nadia, Tony was diagnosed as being bipolar and took medicine to control it. Nadia found out recently from her mother that when she was four, a memory she likely suppressed or was too young to recall, her stepfather Tony punched her in the face, giving her a black eye. According to Nadia's mother, the argument was over a Tupperware party that Tony's mother was giving and that Nadia's mom wanted to go to with Nadia. Klein was angry about his wife wanting to go, so he punched Nadia in the face and then beat up her mother, preventing them both from attending the party. Nadia even found a photo of herself recently in which she's holding her younger brother Kagan as a baby, and in the picture Nadia has a black eye and it's the one that Tony gave her. It doesn't sound like Tony ever apologized for this brutality. I'd say you'd have to be pretty devoid of emotion to punch a four-year-old child in the face. In my mind, this matches the MO of the killer that the profiler laid out for us. Heartless, no remorse. It's upsetting to hear that Nadia's mother who likely took the brunt of Tony Klein's abuse, didn't find a way to escape with her kids when she realized what a monster he was. But I know it's not that easy for victims of DV, particularly when they're in fear for their lives. Nadia describes the police being called out to their house numerous times and Klein telling them that he forgot to take his medicine and that it would never happen again. The police, according to Nadia, would just say, Tony, you need to stop this. But they never arrested him, and nothing was ever done about the abuse. To me, this matches what the profiler said about the killer being able to blend into society, to have a job and a family, and to be able to pass himself off as a nice guy, even when the police knew he had issues. The stepdaughter has wondered if... Tony maybe had friends in the police department who maybe looked the other way. Nadia describes feeling terrified every day, not knowing what was going to set Klein off. She said there were times when if she huffed the wrong way, Tony would beat her up. She also says she thinks the teachers and other kids at her school knew, but they didn't know how to help her and no one seems to have sent CPS out to check on them. Or maybe people complained, but as in the Summer Wells case, the abuser found a way to avoid CPS. 
One time, Nadia said she sat in Tony's chair at a dining table when they had guests over. He told her to get out, and Nadia replied, make me. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Tony allegedly flipped over the table with all the guests watching in shock. Talk about an explosive temper and a weak ego. Sounds like Tony could not handle anyone lipping off to him. That maybe he found it a sign of weakness or humiliation to let something like that go. So he had to counter with physical force. Nadia said Tony targeted her and her mom for the majority of the abuse, as opposed to her brother Bart and Kagan. What I also find odd is that the kid's biological father didn't step in. Was he also intimidated by Tony Klein? Did he maybe not know what was going on? Perhaps he didn't see his four-year-old daughter's black eye. It's so sad to hear what these kids were subjected to and that none of the adults were able to find a way to extricate them from that. Nadia describes Tony Klein as a textbook sociopath, and this is exactly what the profiler said, although she used that modern term for it, psychopathic. When Nadia and her family moved to what they call the Brown House, Tony Klein had a BB gun, and one day he looked at Nadia and said, Start running. I'm going to shoot you. She replied, No. No, you're not. And he replied, I'm going to give you five seconds to get a head start. Nadia ran, and he shot her, and the BB lodged in her elbow. Her mother had to take her to the ER for surgery to get the BB dug out because it had shifted down into her elbow bone. Nadia said she had to lie to the doctors and say that her stepfather was shooting the trash cans and that it ricocheted and hit her because she was standing too close. Is this Tony Klein the hunter? Is his preferred prey children? This incident certainly sounds like the type of person the profiler described as being bridge guy. And it wasn't just his stepchildren and wife that Tony Klein was allegedly hurting. Nadia said he also killed a family cat in front of her, and he shot their dog.